0: All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Crypto 101 Podcast I'm joined as always by my notorious co-host, Mr. Aaron Pizza
1: Mind Malone Aaron, how are we doing today brother? I'm doing very well, Uh, we had a crazy thunderstorm last night here in Texas Uh, Just lightning shooting off every two or three seconds It was really wild, but I'm settling in really well I feel like a Texan. I've got my official (laughs) Texan license. I got cowboy boots. I even ordered my very first cowboy hat. So I'm very proud of that. It only Uh, took uh,
0: about a year of you being in Texas to finally feel part of uh, the landscape there.
1: Yeah, it really did. Um, But, you know, I'm really looking to integrate myself further into the culture. If only there was some way to like merge oil and crypto together. (laughs) Uh, You got anything (laughs) like that for me, Bryce? You know, I, I really don't. Although, uh,
0: as we see, you know, commodity prices of oil has have been absolutely nuts. But, uh, you know, we're actually joined by uh, a fellow, the CEO and the founder from Euler uh, and or sorry, Yo- I, I think. Hold on. It is Euler, Euler right?
1: <laughs> it is Euler. <laughs> it is Euler. But it's it's I thought a it was little was differently.
0: I thought it was you totally the whole time because when i took algebra way back in uh sophomore year of high school uh that's how my sophomore teacher pronounced it and it was being mispronounced and so regardless uh we're joined today by michael bentley of Euler. so so michael welcome to the show and uh how are we doing today
2: yeah uh thank you for having me bryce i feel like there was a great uh, a great gag there from aaron that went over the top of your head uh, about <laughs> How do you mix oil and crypto with the Euler pronunciation? Uh, Yeah, no, I'm doing really well, thank you. And um, yeah, happy to tell you about the pronunciation. It definitely catches, I would say 99% of people out.
1: Yeah, Um, speaking of going right over your head, (laughs) I don't even know what an Euler is. I failed math class. Can you tell us what's with the name? Uh, Give us the the background just on that. And it's spelled E-U-L-E-R, not O-I.
2: Yeah, that's right. There is another project, I think, called Euler with an O-I as well. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. We don't, don't care about that. Them. But, yeah, no, <laughs> so forget those guys, whatever they're doing. Yeah, EU. Um, so Euler, yeah, uh, really nerdy sort of back backstory to this one. Uh, Euler was a uh, a very famous mathematician uh, from Switzerland who was knocking around in the 18th century. Uh, probably one of the most prolific mathematicians of all, all time. And... Um, Yeah, he was uh, known for many, many things. Among them, though, was uh, the study of the compound interest rate formula. Uh, Uh, And that's, of course, uh, the link here to, to lending and borrowing, of course, compound interest being... Um, what you would earn uh, as a yield on a lending protocol like Euler. So uh, Compound, uh, of course, from uh, you know Robert and the team over there, they they probably took the best name, and we were trying to look for something else lending related. And uh, so is the EU you know, named
1: after him too?
2: That's are they, yeah, good question. Uh, no, Ooh, I spent no. Not on, on that oh. one, but he does okay. have a lot of things named after him. Actually, he even has his own own special number, uh, Euler's number. What? Uh, any
0: yeah. Why it's like I have a number. It's like 2.3 or something, right?
1: What do I have to do 8? to get a number?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can just pick one and claim it,
1: we, we can call it our number. <laughs> Jeez. I well, have I love I it. Retired in uh, the podcast hall of fame, <laughs> whatever that may be. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, well, Michael. Let's let's back up. Let's let's get back to the basics here for
0: for folks who are just joining Crypto One Hundred and One. Maybe this is their first time listening to a Crypto One Hundred and One podcast. They're just trying to you know figure out what's this DeFi landscape. What's borrow lend like? Can can we kind of zoom out? Um, and what is what's this DeFi space to you? What's it enabling? uh, That that's so important that made you kind of want to stake your life on it, basically over here and, and starting something like this.
2: Yeah, DeFi is is super powerful because it's the essentially the disintermediation of finance. So a little bit of kind of a word salad there, but I think ultimately it's taking middlemen out of finance, um, and that means that there's more, there's it's more sort of democratic for everybody else. Um, You know, when you go and deposit uh, your cash in a bank, uh, that cash will usually be uh, lent out to other other borrowers, people you know taking mortgages maybe people borrowing from credit cards, uh, maybe people in traditional finance and so on, uh, you know, speculating, all sorts of folks. But um, as it works its way through the system, uh, there's an awful lot of intermediaries there um, taking their cut along the way, which means ultimately that you as the lender, you get a kind of uh, a pittance back in the way of an interest rate on your deposits. Um, so that's one of the issues that DeFi solves, I think, is it, it takes out those, those middlemen, those intermediaries, it's funny. Um, it's uh,
0: like it, it seems like there's such a, a, a spread or a discrepancy, if you will, uh, between the rate that I'll get as a saver or a lender to the bank. Um, yeah. You know, maybe I'll get 0.01% in my savings account, or if I'm in a high interest savings account, maybe 0.05% or whatever. And then as a borrower, I could be the same person borrowing from the same institution, uh, maybe even the same term. Uh, and I'm, you know, borrowing at, you know, maybe five percent interest rate, or if I'm on a credit card, a twenty percent. And it's, it's, uh, it's funny because all of that spread, you're like, well, where did it all go, right? Well, the bank needs to pay their their um, you know, shareholders out, right? Through whether it's a dividend or through share buybacks, they need to pay their uh, customer support team and all their thousands and thousands of employees and their overhead for all their physical locations. And you say, oh, well, banks are pretty freaking inefficient for the the role that they're playing and i think that's what you know bitcoin and ethereum and Euler and all these amazing defi protocols really kind of like blew the clothes off the emperor and it's like hey we could do everything a bank is doing and we could do it for a fraction of the cost at a you know thousand times uh you know speed up uh, it, it's it's just so wild what we've what we've got yeah here.
2: it's also extremely composable right if in in the if i want to if i want to sort of uh, establish a bank account. It usually takes me, you know, several weeks. And once I'm once I'm there, I'm extremely sticky. Uh, I'll be honest. I think I've been with my bank since the age of seventeen. So um, yeah, I think I'm, the same. I'm twi- I'm, twi- <laughs> I'm double that now in age. So they've had me as a customer for a long time. I'm extremely sticky. If I wanted to, um, if there's a better rate of interest at another bank, I tend not to switch. Right? And there's all these massive inefficiencies in the system. Um, because it's very it's 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 not composable. It's very difficult to move from one component of finance to another without signing up, filling out a load of forms, uh, getting a bunch of licenses, and so on. In DeFi, everything's so connected. Um, you know, people often call them money Legos, where different types of financial type products or protocol software running on the blockchain can process this stuff and and can be hooked in. So if you, if there's a better rate elsewhere, you can have a piece of code that will just automate you moving from, you know, one bank or type of, you know, type of protocol to to another very, very quickly and seamlessly. Um, And that's very, very powerful. And then of course the, the other big uh you know advantage here is the decentralized de- decentralization component, uh which means ultimately there's not some centralized uh controller running things that you have to you know put your faith in. And um I'm very lucky, I live in the UK and for the most part, I mean I don't I wouldn't say I trust trust our government right now, but um I, I don't tend to worry too much about uh, you know the bank running off with funds or, or the government you know, uh, censoring me, but uh, lots of people around the world do live in countries where they, they that is a genuine concern. And so um, I think for those people, uh, it's it's nice that, that we have this technology now where they can, uh, you know, um, look after their own assets without having to worry about central controllers, uh, you know, running the show and and
0: shutting them down. Yeah, this is maybe, um, you know, where a key term in the crypto space comes in, uh, non-custodial, Right. Where you don't actually have, um, you know, a centralized custodian or holding company or whatever for, you know, facilitating this. It's just a piece of code that's been written uh, and it's kind of immortalized on the Ethereum blockchain, block after block after block. And so, um, you know, the, these non-custodial app chains and, and blockchains and stuff are, are are pretty interesting. But do you see there being a, a significant, you know? fork in the road i guess if you will because there are some there are some platforms that are you know maybe going a little bit more um you know half and half like half defi half you know custodianship do, do you see a future developing where there's you know kind of both that proliferate at the same time or you have a vision of you know pure defi all the way no hybrid models would work
2: no, I, I see shades of gray everywhere. Um, every all of this technology comes with with trade-offs. Every single you know aspect is is a trade-off. Um and it really depends on, on what you're looking for as a as a user. If you're trading meme coins um, you know, every day, then and then that can be fun to do. Do you really need uh you know the, the decentralization that something like Ethereum can bring or um, can you just do that on a centralized server? Arguably, you can do that in a more centralized environment, where probably you'll have a more user-friendly type environment as well. Uh, decentralized systems are there is a, a higher barrier to entry there to, to, to use the, the to use these software um, and yeah, the the non non custodial stuff is also quite difficult. You are you are in, in charge of your own funds at this point, your own assets. And managing assets is not something that everybody can do. It's It can also be tricky. So people, I think, for ease of use, will just often look for custodians. And that's also fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it should be on their terms and not the terms that are forced by, uh, you know, the country that they live in, I
1: think. Very well said. Uh, I've got kind of a technical question that hopefully uh, you don't mind answering. I think a lot of our listeners uh, are seeing the ticker symbol WETH WETH and they kind of wonder what's the difference between that and my normal ethereum tokens and why do we see this being used in a lot of uniswap pairs could you give us some commentary on just what that is and why
2: yeah sure so uh ethereum uh the the network or the blockchain uh has its own native uh unit of uh, exchange or currency i suppose you could call it uh ethereum uh eth the to- uh, which is uh is not a token um it's a yeah a unit of exchange to to pay for transactions essentially on on the ethereum network but it's
0: not uh, an erc20 kind of token
2: exactly yeah the the most of the tokens that people are trading actually all conform to a, a standard as you pointed out called erc20 uh, which was developed uh, you know really early on as well in the life cycle of Ethereum is one of the first um, yeah, first major standards introduced to the system um, which allowed people to create um, tokenized uh, tokenized assets that are uh, fungible, which means that they're kind of like cash or stocks. They can kind of there's you know no one unit that, that has any more um, value than any other unit in the total supply. Um, and so, yeah, many, many people trade ERC-20s. There are tens of thousands of these things around these days, these tokens. And unfortunately, um, in many of the, the applications that people are buying, many of these protocols, uh, it's often simplest just to design the systems to work for ERC-20s um, and to assume that the ERC-20 standard is being applied and that it's that everything going through that system is compliant with that standard. Now, the problem there, of course, is that ETH... This this native currency is not an ERC twenty, so uh, you have to now make some special. You either have to carve out a sort of whole, you know, separate set of assumptions and write special code to special case this one particular type of asset going through your protocol, or you can uh, do a cop out, which is essentially people have written a wrapper that that uh, goes around ETH, creates something called wrapped ETH. and it's one-to-one. If you have one ETH and you wrap it, you get one wrapped ETH back. Um, but that wrapped ETH is then ERC-20 compliant. Uh, and so that means that when you're you know developing a protocol, you, you can kind of forget about all the peculiarities as, of ETH as a currency and just focus on um, this one very clear standard, which is ERC-20. That
1: makes a lot of sense, actually. It's we got to clip of like... that.
0: That's like the best explanation of wrapped tokens I've ever heard.
1: Yeah, it's like catching butterflies or rather it's like catching lightning bugs in a jar. And then you can trade that jar for a jar of honey or a jar of pickles, <laughs> whatever it is. It makes a lot of sense. you are just going to say, oh, I've got a farm of lightning bugs in my backyard. It doesn't work so well.
0: <laughs> Interesting. Um, well, Sorry, I
1: was just thinking about that while I was looking over the Euler website, which is beautiful, by the way. Love the color schemes. Hmm. Native dark huh. mode. Big fan.
2: Glad you like that. Yeah, we need to get a light mode there. I mean, it's not for everyone. Dark mode. I, I personally like it, but um, yeah, light mode, light mode incoming at some point.
0: <laughs> so, so let's talk. You know, high level. Um, some of the main risks that come with a platform like Euler, Um, DeFi lending and borrowing. You know, we always hear about you know on-chain liquidations or under collateralized positions. Um, are there you know collateral requirements or, or kind of how do you guys think about some of the main risks? Um, and, and how do you guys address those?
2: Yeah, there's, I mean, this is a, set, we've spent almost two years thinking about these risks. So I've got a lot to tell you on this, on this particular topic, but awesome. I guess the, the first thing to say is that, um, like most protocols in DeFi that deal with some with borrowing and lending, Euler is a, an over collateralized lending protocol. And that's kind of, uh, that's kind of, Different to how things are in the in the normal ordinary day of life sort of world that we live in. Um, essentially, what over collateralized means is if you want to say borrow uh, some Bitcoin, you will need to bring in more value uh, of another asset than you want to borrow in Bitcoin. So you might, for instance, bring in a thousand dollars worth
0: of USDC and borrow five hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin. So there's like not leverage, I guess, in the borrowing.
2: Well, leverage you can actually achieve. uh, You can actually achieve leverage in um, in a uh, yeah without um, using an over over collateralized protocol. I'll tell you how you do. You get a leverage position. Um, You start. Let's say you um, yeah you that loan again. But we'll do a thousand dollar deposit of USDC, and then you borrow the Bitcoin, say nine hundred dollars worth. So you're only just over collateralized. You can then actually uh, take that nine hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin deposit that into Euler, and now uh, borrow some uh, uh, USDC, swap that back for Bitcoin, redeposit that, uh, swap that for USDC, um, buy some Bitcoin, and so on. You can essentially level up by taking cycles. Is
0: this called recursive lending?
2: Recursive borrowing, yeah. Recursive borrowing. Um, or, or, yeah, I mean, so people do do this with, there's a yeah really co- complex uh, nuance to this where people will do this to to yield farm by using the same asset. So they'll deposit and borrow the same asset over and over again in a kind of cycle. Um, and so they'll start with, say, $1,000 um, worth of USDC and their end position will be $5,000 worth of USDC deposits and $4,000 worth of USDC borrows. Um, and so that would be uh, made, uh like a forex um, leverage position so you've wow. taken something where you've yeah you were you could have just had a thousand dollar deposits but now you've got way you've got five times the deposits and and four times the kind of debt um mm-hmm. than the original deposit and so you kind of leverage and notice when you set up that kind of position you could then just swap the deposits from usdc to bitcoin and then you would have a leverage long or short position on the deposited asset versus the the thing you're borrowing generally when you borrow and sell something you you're you're, it's, you're said to be going short on that asset um, you're hoping that it drops in price so that when you come to repay that loan uh, you it's much cheaper to repay and
0: so you can keep the difference now is there ever going to be a kind of a point in time where the everyday citizen could can, can use a platform to get you know leverage in, in kind of the the way that you described but all of these processes, are obfuscated where the, the, you know, user at home on his application could, could get that leverage or get that borrow, um, in kind of the way that you described without having to go manually swap, 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 swap three, four times over and then say, okay, now I've built my own kind of custom, um, you know, leveraged position because that to me, you know, is, is something that even, um, you know, even the most kind of um, you know, seasoned crypto trader or crypto investor is, is going to have a hard time, you know, kind of putting their head around.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's funny you should say that. That's it, exactly what the, the the UI that's built that wraps around the the protocol of Euler actually enables. So you yeah. can go to the to the, uh, the Euler app. I
0: didn't know that. This was not a setup.
2: <laughs> yeah, it sounded like a great setup. I was, I mean, I'm rubbing my hands in glee here because that was great. Great setup for me. Uh, if you go to app.euler.finance, You'll see there's a quick action toolbar at the top there, and uh, there's lots of actions and uh, lots of advanced use cases. Um, probably a lot more actions and types of sort of trades that you can make on Oiler than a lot of other lending protocols that you'll visit. But essentially, what we do here uh, to enable this functionality is we take these, um, take these the, those individual sort of units and compose them together. So, like you said, there's a, a deposit and a swap and a borrow. Um, and you can actually use as well under the hood um, some mathematical tricks to take shortcuts, which make these kind of trades a lot cheaper um, in terms of gas usage and transaction costs on Oiler than, than, uh, than most lending protocols. So yeah, leverage trading is, is definitely enabled even in, a, in an over-collateralized environment.
0: Did you know that May 22nd is Bitcoin Pizza Day? So on this day, In 2010, a legendary Florida man paid 10,000 Bitcoin, not $10,000 worth of Bitcoin, but literally 10,000 Bitcoin for two Papa John pizzas. This dude's name was Laszlo. And now (laughs) Laszlo spent, in today's terms, around $380 million. And that's just for pizzas. Pretty amazing, right? But what's more amazing is that while most of these 10,000 Bitcoin are lost, 579 coins were eventually traced back to a mysterious wallet. Now this wallet today is huge. It holds over 53,000 Bitcoin, which is worth over $2 billion today. But consider, in 2021, that would be worth over $3 billion because Bitcoin's value is a lot higher. And admittedly, that's one of the challenges of investing in Bitcoin, which is the volatility. Many people just don't have the HODL mindset. And that's why I'm stoked to tell you about another Intriguing alternative. No, it's not an altcoin. It's not an ape NFT. No, listen, it's still flying under the radar of most of the mainstream media. And I'm excited to offer my listeners the ability to get priority access. So if you want the rest of the story, go to masterworks.io/slash crypto 101. Again,
1: for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones
0: who get it done. To get the rest of the story, head over to masterworks.io slash crypto one oh one. And it's super important that you see the important regulation A disclosures as well at masterworks.io slash CD. Now, if you want everything last time, that's masterworks.io slash Crypto 101. And we've got some disclosures as well in the show notes for you. Now, one of the other things that I was kind of curious about was, uh, you know, I guess who is your first like target customer Um, in kind of like regards to do you go after because there's always this like dilemma where it's like do you go after you know the the developers and do you go after the kind of like VCs and all that kind of stuff get them excited and then have them as strategics that could kind of help you know acquire more customers or do you guys get the customers and the the end users first um, that makes it kind of more more exciting to develop on.
2: Yeah, interesting question. I guess um, as a as a developer of the protocol, you have the sort of the initial development sort of pro, uh, like pipeline where you, know, you will often need support from advisors and you'll need some capital to pay salaries and so on. And then, then once you deploy the protocol from there on, hopefully fairly quickly, it starts to progressively decentralize over time. And of course, at that point it's not non-custodial. The software's running on the blockchain and it's kind of out of your hands at that point, largely. Um, and so, um, initially I think for that first phase, yeah, it's, it, you know, having support of VCs and other seasoned, um, uh, players in the space is really, really important. They can help guide you a lot on how to, um, set up a a labs company and develop, uh, develop a protocol. Yeah. With all the support that that requires in, in a very unique kind of space. I think to your to your question about who's the kind of target audience for this though as well is um, on a lending and borrowing protocol. I think you have lots of different types of users. Ultimately, um, I think on the deposit side, uh, you have just people that tend to be looking for for yield, and they can be um, they can be average sort of retail users, everyday people. That are fairly, you know, they they're not out there interested in trading uh, all the time. They just want to deposit their assets. They they like the assets that they hold. They have a basket of different ones, and they want to deposit them and come back in a year and hopefully have put those to use and earned some interest on them. On the borrowing side, um, especially in over collateralized context, that pretty much everybody doing this is an active trader of some sort, or they're a professional player in DeFi. Um, there are a lot of sort of DeFi native hedge funds. Uh, whales, people call them as well. Um, people are out there that are able to to essentially borrow assets to uh, to generate profits for themselves. Um, they can arbitrage on exchanges and and you know do all these advan- advanced functionalities in the trading environment. And essentially, what they're doing is borrowing, making some profits, and paying some of those profits back to the lenders um, on the protocol. So you really do have uh, there's a there's a chicken and egg problem here. If you don't cater for the lenders. Then you get no supply, which means there's no borrowers. And if you don't cater for the borrowers, then of course there's no interest being paid. So why would the lenders even show up? So,
0: right. Yeah. A little chicken and the egg problem, the classic problem. Yeah.
1: What I really like about this platform is you can really just make your own market for just about anything. And, you know, I would say my portfolio is a little bit on the exotic side. Uh, Some of the assets I hold and hold very large bags of are not supported anywhere else uh, probably not even heard of anywhere else but what's the process of you know making a market is it difficult do we need to apply it for anything you know it shows here you know you've got six assets for collateral 10 are cross compatible 42 are isolated then you've got 1259 unlisted what does that mean
2: yeah, so I think um, the first thing to say here is that Euler is you know, one of the first of its kind in the lending and borrowing space to be able to um, handle the risks associated with lending and borrowing, uh, a vast array of different types of assets, whether or not they're uh, you know, very volatile or liquid, uh, very liquid All sorts of assets can be listed on Euler, even malicious ones. Um, And the protocol is designed from the ground up to be able to handle the risks associated with these markets. And that's not true of most most lending products. So um, a a key component here as well is that uh, you don't need permission from anybody to be able to activate a lending market on Euler. We build on top of Uniswap, which is a decentralized exchange to allow users to activate their own lending and borrowing markets. Uh, and so, yeah, to your point there. If you've got something, uh, you know, quite exotic, and you currently are just holding on to it yourself, but maybe want to earn a yield on this on this asset, you could come on and check out the unlisted markets there and see if your your asset is in in the unlisted markets. You could then activate the lending market for it, deposit that asset, and then wait and see if anybody wants to borrow it to come to come and pay you, a, you know, a return. So uh, yeah, Euler is permission permissionless in nature, and, and it's uh, yeah it's quite a technical challenge to be able to enable that permissionless sort of feature. But um, we've got lots of novel risk management tools that are specifically designed uh, to make permissionless lending and borrowing uh, you know as, as safe as possible for users.
0: Wow, well, well, I'm very excited about everything that Euler has going for you guys. Um, you know, you guys just recently did a mainnet launch. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, not uh, just back in uh, December. All right. And so, were there any uh, hiccups or surprises or learnings that you guys kind of drew from that, or did it go just as smooth as planned?
2: No, I mean, yeah, it didn't. I, you always learn from everything um, uh, that, that you do. I think if you're if you're not, you're probably not paying attention. There's always things you can do better. It did go. It did go uh, broadly, uh, you know, very well. I think uh, we. At Euler, we take risk management very, very seriously. So we deliberately launched the protocol in a a very sort of conservative mode. Uh, We started with three robust collateral assets, Um, not not a big diverse array like you see on some other protocols. And uh, yeah, some very conservative risk parameters that meant that people had to over collateralize quite a bit before they could borrow which ultimately you know, uh, it's not ideal for borrowers, but it does mean that the protocol is, and, then, and its lenders are better protected. So that was the first thing we did to mitigate risks. Um, in terms of what we noticed, I think one of the first things was it's crucial for, for lenders and borrowers to be able to understand the risks about the oracles that they're using. Um, so the oracles in the context of a lending protocol are um, the providers of the prices of the assets, Mm-hmm. Uh, and pr- prices are super uh, important here because they determine how much people can lend or borrow. If um, if you want to deposit, you know, one Bitcoin into the protocol and borrow some USDC, we need to know to a, 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 you know a fairly high degree of accuracy how much Bitcoin actually is is worth and how much it can be traded for USDC. If we if uh, if the protocol gets that wrong um, and we you know overestimate the 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 value of Bitcoin, then you should be able to borrow a lot more USDC than you you know you should really be allowed to, and at that point you might be tempted to just walk away and buy back the Bitcoin, right, and never repay that loan. So
0: yeah, and these Oracle attacks are super popular.
2: Yeah, I think there's been uh, there's been probably uh, too many projects that have built with the the mindset of build fast and break things, and, and um, occasionally that's led to to attacks um on on the oracles and the manipulation of prices so one of the things that we worked really hard on uh, from day one is is providing users with a kind of rating and a better understanding about the risks associated with oracles ultimately everything's non, non-custodial and so uh, it's up to users to manage those risks but i think it's really important to spell out what they are and how much how much might it cost to essentially manipulate the price of an oracle so that a user an attacker could gain an advantage that's something we um, we calculate off chain, and we actually, as the Labs company, we we do a lot of research on this this stuff, and we then display it on the website that allows users to interact with the protocol, so that they can they can make their own own decisions there. How much, you know, if it costs a uh, hundred pounds to move the price of something. Then that doesn't sound very safe. If it costs a billion dollars to move the price of something, then okay, maybe I'm you know I'm I'm comfortable using that kind of lending market. It seems quite robust to manipulation. Um, that, they're the kind of decisions people people have to make, and that's one of the things we've been learning throughout. Is how we can we how can we uh, combine off chain data um, and, and do analytics so that we can make the. the Yeah, the on-chain protocol uh, a better uh,
0: experience for 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 users. Wow, I love it. Uh, I mean, truly thorough. um, And and you guys have just really covered all the bases. And I love you know the the two pronged approach that at least I hear from you, where it's um, you know Euler's really going after safety first and risk management um, and user experience, right? And I think that that's exactly what the DeFi space needs. Um, we've seen so many DeFi protocols go up in smokes because of, you know, poor risk management and staking and compounding and just leveraging risk on top of risk and then implosion. And then we've seen, you know, protocols that are, you know, good and um, you know, safe, but they've got, you know, God awful UX and you can't even figure out how to get, you know, off the homepage. And so I, I think that, you know, I, I love your guys's approach and um, you know, I'm really excited about it. And so I, I kind of in closing, just, just have a couple, uh questions pete before we get to the closing questions did you have anything to, to round out that discussion or uh, no this has
1: been fantastic
0: awesome and michael is there anything that i left out uh about Euler that you really wanted to make sure the audience uh had heard crystal clear no, i i mean there's there's lots of things like more i could tell you about i could literally <laughs> talk for hours on this stuff
2: so i would um yeah i would say one thing that we didn't touch on so much but which is so important for lending and it's one of the things that oil tries to optimize as well which is very difficult is capital efficiency which is how um, yeah how much can you sort of squeeze out of your capital and Mm. um, when we launched as I mentioned we launched this kind of capital inefficient state but we've slowly been progressively increasing the capital efficiency on the protocol um, and also increasing the risk unfortunately those two things are on sort of uh, opposite uh, well yeah perpendicular opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So um, yeah, there's lots of optimizations, optimizations we've made there in, including stuff about interest rates and in particular liquidations, which you guys touched on bef- uh, before. Mm-hmm. And I think the liquidation is probably one of the biggest areas in, in DeFi that, that, that suffers from capital inefficiency. And I think Euler has a really unique solution for that. So I would encourage you, um, yeah, people to come and, and check out our pages Um, our documentation pages uh, on docs.oiler.finance and and definitely come and join us in in, uh, the Discord. All the labs team are there ready to uh, answer people's questions and explain all these other
0: features that we have. Awesome. Um, I I definitely don't want this conversation to end, so I'm going to keep it going with a couple more uh, personal questions because I'm I'm actually super curious. Um, I saw that you attended Oxford. Uh, You got a PhD in both philosophy and I believe it was uh, mathematical biology. Was that right? Um, almost the um, the the doctor of philosophy. The
2: the philosophy bit is just a generic thing that's like some it's actually uh yeah it's just an oxfordy thing That it's just a title <laughs> so it's got nothing to do with my uh area of study um no i i, I which was, was mathematical
0: I, uh biology
2: is that correct that's right yeah i i was mainly studying um the, the particular branch of that area uh, was was evolutionary game theory um so i was interested in studying essentially how um how populations change through time um, especially in the context how they evolve uh, and change through time especially in the context of social interaction interactions uh, being at play in play so uh, if you think about a lot of natural systems um, that have organisms in the organisms are often very well adapted to their environments and that's because natural selection is a very powerful optimizer of, of organisms Um, and so they evolve through time to fit to their environments you know fish swim well in water and uh, birds can fly in air and all all the rest of it all that good stuff but um, when the rest of your environment is also evolving and you're interacting with that environment through social interactions um, things get really interesting and you get really interesting dynamics at play where um, what I depend, you know the optimal um, behaviour for me uh, depends on what you do and then I'm trying to predict what you do you're trying to predict what i do and we had kind of have these um these yeah games at play and uh, this sort of game theory plays out uh yeah uh, a lot in evolutionary wow. theory and also in, in defi as well as it happens so that was that was my yeah area of expertise
0: yeah and it's it's just such an interesting path that you you took from kind of studying these patterns in nature um and then you went on to become a pricing analyst um, and you kind of Took that you know experience in biology and math, and you're like, oh, I could apply this to markets. And, and how, what what was the overlap there? How did you see, hey, I could take all my you know studies and my research and actually attain better pricing uh, forecasts?
2: Um. Well, yeah, good question. I mean, the I guess there's a there's a few a few things to say about this. One as a general point, uh, the I suppose. A, the type of science I did was very interdisciplinary. So my background is it kind of spans biology, computer science and maths. So uh, you end up having a, a quite a, a broad skill set that can be applied to lots of different problems. You're more of a jack of all trades and master of none kind of thing. So Your, your parents are must be very proud. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Um, I hope so. But then, um, yeah, more specifically, what you know in relation to the actual things I was studying, I think in in evolutionary game theory, you tend to take systems that are really heavily, really heavily optimized, and then you want to look back in time and say, okay, well, how did they get there? What what um, what processes were at play? What was the environment like? And try to figure that out retrospectively. And in DeFi, you end up wanting to do the exact opposite. You want to construct environments and processes and incentive structures. Such that the end state is a heavily optimized robust system that's hard to hard to break. And so I I kind of see the two as being, you know, um, you know, opposites of one another in some respect.
1: As a man who pays a very special attention to detail, can you point out any other projects either specifically in DeFi or the crypto space in general that I guess would meet your standards or meet your interests? Oh, that's a good one. Um, you know, help us help us separate uh, the wheat from the chaff, if you will.
2: Yeah. So, I would say I'm a huge fan of uh, both versions of Uniswap. I mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with Uniswap, but I'm, I think, um, yeah, the first version, which is is becoming you know uh, less widely used these days because of its lack of capital efficiency. If we go back to that, but I think it was really an incredible innovation. And uh, really helped democratize the process of of making markets, which is usually run by these sort of centralized, um, you know, players on exchanges. Uh, so that was super super cool. I'm a
0: huge fan of that. Um, Uniswap. And you're talking about the uh, the V3 limit order functionality on Uniswap, that's what I was coming to. Yeah, the that's by
2: the, I mean that I think is also exceptional, and that allows um, much higher capital efficiency. And, and and we use Uniswap to power Euler as well. Um so it also provides a, a price oracle and there's oh, wow. um there's there's also a link there between Uniswap and uh options, which are you know a type of um you know uh financial product, I suppose. Um and then the, the way that Uniswap V3 works, you can kind of construct um, yeah, I guess there's like this idea of an uh, automated market maker, and there's the, the, the kind of basic version that Uniswap v2 uh use. And then lots of people kind of came up with all sorts of other AMMs that were um, of, you know, different varieties. And what's nice about Uniswap V3, I think, is that it's actually all of the above, all wrapped up into one protocol. So it can kind of uh, replicate any AMM. And I think that's really, you know, from a a mathematician standpoint, that's really elegant and uh, really impressive.
0: So huge fan of Uniswap. Awesome. I love it. I had I had one more question. Um, and it's kind of a general overarching question. Um, but like of, of all the trends in DeFi, you know, DeFi is one big trend, but inside it, there's, you know, uh, you know, borrow lending, there's you know, stablecoin algos, there's um, you know, DOVs, the the option vaults. Is there any like trend that's on the cusp that like most people haven't really heard about, but you're looking, you're Talking in these chats with all the smartest people in crypto and building these protocols, what's like that next one that's maybe a little ways out there, but you're like that is going to be impactful, you know, paradigm shifting kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, Does I think I, tu- I think I touched on and, and, and the last comment, which is options. I think building out some kind of options protocol. Uh, that 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 it runs efficiently on on a blockchain. There are actually some some nice protocols. I really like uh, it, it runs on um on a layer two solution. There's a protocol called Lyra. Um, and I, I really like that. My daughter is actually also called Lyra, so um, hey, there we go. Uh, is that a math
0: I, thing? Is there like a famous mathematician
2: named Lyra? Uh, no, no. There's um, a, a trilogy of books called His Dark Materials, and the, the main uh, the main character in that is a, a girl called Lyra, and it's a coming of age story. And uh, it's actually set in Oxford, which was where uh, where I lived when Lyra was born. So uh, it seemed fitting to sort of name name her after this character. Um and then apparently it's also a constellation. I think uh that's where it came from with the the um with the options trading protocol. But they're doing cool stuff. There's also cool stuff you can do where you can actually start to think about uniswap uh, as a as a as you know, if you build on top of Uniswap, you can maybe construct a type of option um out of Uniswap. And so um all that stuff is it involves some some interesting uh, maths and um, there's some trade-offs one has to make and so on, but I think there's some really smart people working on that right now. And yeah, I, I, I think
0: in the next six months to 12 months, we might see um, some cool stuff coming out in that area. Love it. Love it. Um, Michael, thank you so much for spending that, that full hour with us today. If people want to find out more, we'll send them to oiler.finance uh, or, or app.oiler.finance. That's going to be in the show notes for everyone. Uh, check them out on twitter discord you guys are all over the place um michael thank you so much and we hope to have you back when uh when you got some more big announcements when there's a big update uh whatever you just uh you know where to find us yeah i'd love to be back yeah i really enjoyed talking to you guys so thanks for having me really appreciate it absolutely all right everybody at home watching and listening stay tuned uh we got some more guests coming up for you later this week